and to me, I'm still perplexed by why folks are so uh, fearful of diversity initiatives. I think a lot of it has to do with misinformation around what diversity is, right? A Rutgers researcher recently found that having a strong sense of belonging at school could mitigate suicidal tendencies among black students. In fact, the research showed that as black adolescents' sense of belonging decrease, their risks for suicidal ideation and attempts increase by as much as 35%. What does it mean for a child to feel accepted and valued at school? What role do parents and teachers play? And how can we create a sense of belonging for all students? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Ramon Stevens to find out. Ramon Stevens is the founder and executive director of The Conscious Kid, an education nonprofit dedicated to supporting families, educators, and organizations in learning about and taking action against systemic inequality and racism. He joins us today to share how we can create a sense of belonging for all of our students. Ramon Stevens, thank you so much again for joining us. You are doing some really, really interesting work, but you are... Almost an anomaly these days. You're an African-American man in education. And I say that because only uh, less than 7% of teachers in America are African-American men. And so that's one heck of a starting point. And I have to ask, since you're this unicorn, what got you interested in, in being, becoming so deeply immersed in the education of our young? Oh, wow. You know, thank you, Kevin, for that context and providing, you know, that important statistical information. And I continually ask myself this question on a daily basis. You know, why, 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 did, why did I choose education? But I think um, it's two parts. One, which a lot of folks in education kind of got into it maybe by accident. Maybe, maybe it was something that they were really passionate about. Uh, maybe they became more passionate about it later in life. But I think just coming up in the education system and seeing my own experiences and thinking about ways that I probably could have been supported more or ways that maybe things could have been different inspired my initial role. But I think also like having my own kids and having to see them navigate the same challenges that I had to navigate kind of forced me to have to do the research um, and look at different ways to make change for them. You know, I have two young black boys coming through the education system. And so um, that was something that I had to learn about. Uh, but I, I also think too, when I, as, when I graduated um, undergraduate, I was a, an admissions advisor for University of Washington Bothell. And that gave me a space. My undergraduate really kind of gave me like a theoretical backing for a lot of kind of inequalities that happened in the school system, mm. which really kind of primed me for it. When I became a diversity officer, I was really able to see what it looked like as far as which students were gaining access to the university, which communities were not, um, how we were going to change up our recruiting practices to be more equitable and support more marginalized communities. That really kind of gave me that real life experience. But I think I, I saw other black leaders and I had never seen that before. And so my boss was an African-American man and I had never had that. And I was able for the first time to not only see myself, but to see how folks were, how black people were navigating the pipeline. So to this day, like three of my mentors are, are black women um, and they are some of the most important people in my life that have shaped almost everything about uh, my scholarly identity and experience. But being able to see those models that look like me played a key role, I think, in really doing this. If 
first I was like, maybe I'll just go to undergraduate and get a degree and that's going to be good enough. But once I was able to see black leaders that were going to law school, getting their graduate degrees and seeing how they were able to make it uh, sustainable, not just for themselves, but do positive things with their community. I was like, I'm in. I think I can do this. I'm in. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Let me, let me ask you this. Where did you grow up? You talked about your challenges in the school system. What area of the country and where did you grow up and attend school? Ah, so I grew up in Washington State, um, and I attended school in both Seattle, near, or right near Seattle, Washington. I say that because that's kind of the big city that everybody knows about. And then I also attended yep. school uh, in, a, in a town called in Puyallup, Washington, which is like about an hour Oh, south. yeah, I know that. Okay, okay, great, yeah. And then um, in Tacoma, yeah. too. So I, I attended schools in, like, the Tacoma, Pub, Puyallup, kind of Seattle. Uh, really was Renton as this specific school um, in my elementary. And so the, my, my schooling in my undergraduate – or, sorry, my elementary school was, was fairly diverse. Uh, I, had, I had a pretty solid – um, experience in my elementary school. I think when I got to high school and I was more out there um, in the Puyallup area where I, things were, weren't, as, weren't as diverse and weren't, weren't as kind of open to uh, some of the... Or welcoming. Yes, welcoming. There we go. Yeah. And, 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 and at the time, <laughs> you know, you don't really understand. You know things are differently. You know that you're yeah. not being treated yeah. the same. You know there's these weird microaggressions and people saying like all kind of yeah. weird slurs towards you, thinking it's okay and making jokes. And that was something that I had never experienced experience until I started going to schools where there weren't a lot of like black and brown folks. Well, let me let me uh, ask you this, because, you know, you created the conscious kid. I'm going to talk about what it means to have a sense of belonging for our students and why that's important. But I also want to talk about this whole area of diversity and this whole area of you know, inclusion. Um, it is now a wildfire political area. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it used to be, uh, you know, as recently as 10, 15 years ago, understood that the notion of diversity uh, was important in business and education and life. Uh, why is it, do you think, that the notion of diversity in some quarters is now a dirty word? That is a very good question. Uh, and to me, I'm still perplexed by why folks are so uh, fearful of diversity initiatives. I think a lot of it has to do with misinformation around what diversity is, right? And then the, that misinformation then gets amplified. It's good old classic propaganda where folks will, will might, might misrepresent or misunderstand or, or haven't been taught certain things. So it's, I think it's multi-pronged. First, we got to look at how does our school system provide mechanisms to educate people around race and culture. Um, we know that this is something that's been largely absent from our school system in general. So we don't have a space where folks are even educated about it. So then where are folks getting their information about these things? Maybe they're from friends or family. Maybe they're from places on the internet, YouTube, social media, things that might not be vetted, things that might have some truths, but also have some half-truths. Um, so I think this basic just kind of understanding of what we even mean by diversity, what is the definition of race and racism, all of these things, folks don't have a steady definition. There are definitions, but folks don't understand it because we haven't been educated, right? When we talk about things like, what do we mean by supporting kids of color? We're not saying that we're being oppositional to other students. What we're talking about is creating practices that support all students. So you'll have the misinformation that says, you know, we want to support, say, African-American students. 
well, then that gets put in a binary. Oh, that means you don't want to support other student groups. Like, no, no, that's not what we said. That's not what that what that's not what that means. When we say we want to support marginalized communities, what we're saying is it's not an exclusion to supporting all communities, right? And that's the whole point is to make sure we create school systems that support all communities. When we talk about what is culturally responsive pedagogy, people think, oh, you want to have a bunch of literature that's anti-white. Well, not really. When we talk about culturally responsive literature, culturally responsive schooling, we're talking about creating schooling practices that support all students, creating literature that supports all communities, right? Um, and the reason why we talk about the intentionality in supporting marginalized communities because there's a lot of problematic stereotypes and negative representation within media historically for those communities. And even just getting access to books for many communities still remains an issue of invisibility. Um, so we're looking at how are we making sure we support all communities? We need to make sure that we center those that aren't being discussed, but it doesn't mean that we're not equally supporting everyone else in the room. When you talk about access to literature that is inclusive and uh, sort of reflects the cultural experience of uh, particularly folks of color, uh, even before Conscious Kid, that kind of got you going because you started lending books to the library, isn't that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, this is a thing that's been going on. I, I from from I can think about from my own perspective as like as like a black man, black person growing up in a black household. We always had friends and ourselves that had personal book collections. So you know, maybe your mom, my dad. My, my cousin, my uncle brings over a book. You know, I found this really good book that I think would be good because the reality is, is that when you go to bookstores, or at least when I was a kid and still now, and even your school library, there's just not equal representation. So we had to figure out different ways to get positive, empowering messages about ourselves and to educate ourselves about our cultural identity. Um, and so I can think about my parents had, they made sure they had books and empowering representations that was able to educate me about being black. But these were books that I couldn't get in my public library. Um, you know, I go up the street uh, and I find, you know, you know, my friend, you know, Eddie, Eddie May, and, you know, this is another black friend. And, and, and his, his, his grandparents got a, a separate book collection of some other things that we can exchange books. Um, so as we grew, as we got older, you know, so I guess let me first go take a step back is I want to give a nod to the movements that have always taken place within various marginalized communities to educate themselves on their community and their identity. The diverse book movement has been around since black people have been here. Um, but as far as our role in popularizing it and us really helping uh, feeling inspired by that. That's kind of where it starts off is these small collections in our homes and in our communities. Um, and then as we get older, you know, we have children and we're like, you know, we need to get some books for our kids. You know, I need to find some books that's, you know, center representations of, you know, black and brown boys and kids um, and provide also windows that they can learn about diverse communities as well. So we go to our local uh, library and we ask, you know, do you have any uh, books with with black kids and this was when I was in um, SoCal when I was in San Diego and I remember the the, the librarian like you know scratched their head uh, thought about it came back like two hours later there was like 10,000 books in this library brought two books back one of them was about a, a black girl praying to God that her hair wasn't going to be nappy and the other one was equally disempowering and so we're like this is still a thing where we can't this is still a thing I'm like fully grown now this is no shifts so then, you know, we start doing the research. I'm naturally a doctoral student um, at this time. And my, you know, my partner finished her master's. And so we're like, let's do some research on this and see if this is a thing. And then the, 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 the statistics were equally, equally disparate in the sense of black people getting access to publishing most stories that were the few stories that were available about black folks weren't even written by black folks and had all kind of 
stereotypes and problematic messaging. And the research even showed that there was more books about animals than there were about like all communities of color, if I, if I remember correctly. The, I believe that's Lee and Lowe statistics that, that actually provides the, 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 the statistical data on representation in children's books. And so we're like, so this is still like a major structural gap. And so, you know, we had been collecting our books just like, you know, our parents had. And, talking to our friends of color who had kids and, you know, we're exchanging books. And then it got to the point where we had so many books and we had so many folks asking, we're like, let's just make this a project. Um, and so, you know, we started off, like I said, lending books to families here and there, and we've grown to be able to donate over 350,000 books across 50 states. And those are books that are about by and about marginalized communities and not just the representation, you have to have the content that provides counter stereotypical content and affirming identity affirming. Because we can say pick a couple of books with black kids in it, but if it's full of stereotypes, it's gonna do just as much damage. So we need to make sure that we have the representation and the content because not all representation is good representation. How would you respond to, you know, as I said, this 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 challenging space we're in uh, related to diversity, how would you respond to what many? I mean, you see political leaders, you see uh, parents, groups uh, talk about that. If you have an uh, over-indexing with respect to these these kind of books, that it can end up being uh, more negative, and it can also be injurious to the majority population. I mean, you hear that more and more. How would you respond to that? Diverse books that have empowering content about marginalized communities is good for all, all communities. And so like, this is the narrative when we talk about misinformation about like, for example, diverse literature is like when we do culturally responsive pedagogy, when we do diverse literature, they assume that this is some thing of charity that we're giving to these black and brown folks for them to see themselves. They don't see how much it benefits themselves to learn empowering narratives about communities that are different from themselves. And that's the whole point. When we talk about windows and mirrors, yes, it's important for communities of color who haven't been represented to see themselves, but it's also important for communities to see other communities outside of themselves and learn empowering things about their contributions and what they've done for, say, America and society. Because that shapes the way that we interact and treat one another. For example, when we talk about like racial bias, right? Bias, it can be explicit and it can be unconscious, right? And explicit bias. Um, one of the biggest factors that pushes back against unconscious bias is counter stereotypical messaging. So when we talk about receiving information about stereotypes from the dominant landscape, when you don't have empowering representation that are creating these stories, right? The thing that can push back against that is these counter stories, basically. Um, and so when we talk about why is this beneficial, there is a, a researcher, her name is Christine Sleater, and she does research on white kids who study, say, ethnic studies. Because the idea is like, why do I need to study ethnic studies? And they actually had the highest academic outcomes than the kids of color because they had never been exposed to narratives around race, diversity, and culture. Um, many kids of color brought that into, their, into the classroom with them. And so as far as being able to see communities differently and treat communities differently, research shows that when folks have access to counter stereotypes typical empowering information that changes the way that we literally see a community and see somebody which therefore impacts the way that we treat one another. And so when we have messaging around solidarity, right, what does that look like? You know, all communities are represented in diverse literature. Um, that's the other thing is when we talk about white folks in particular, right, there's stories, examples of white folks throughout history that have resisted racism and slavery. We can talk about the abolitionists, right? We can talk about, oh, I'm sorry, um, like, the, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Quakers and the Shakers who uh, 
or align with the abolitionist movement um, in, in uh, yeah. earlier in the century is another example of it, right? But these are stories that aren't told throughout history, right? And folks um, from all backgrounds that made changes. And so the reality is, is that when folks see themselves and they're provided models for how to a more cohesive society looks, it benefits all communities. Um, but the misinformation is, but that's not, unfortunately, that's often not how it's explained. So talk about the conscious kid. How does the conscious kid operate in terms of addressing some of these challenges? Yeah, so a big part is our lens is we focus on, you know, creating media to support healthy and racial identity development. Um, and a big part of that is creating content and finding content that is written by marginalized or underrepresented authors that also provides uh, counter stereotypical, counter biased information and identity affirming information. And so uh, aside from, you know, we wanted to build a platform that could uplift these stories because stories is one of the oldest tools in education. It's shown to have one of the biggest impacts on learning and it cuts across all cultures communities. All communities use mm -hmm. stories to educate and inform folks of the world, right, and, and, and how to um, operate within that world and things that have worked, things that do not work. And so by providing stories that provide um, empowering counter stereotypical messages from folks within those communities, um, that is a way of like kind of pushing back against that unconscious bias, but also showing all the diverse authorship, right? And the different stories across communities of what that can look like. And so our platform was really aimed to uplift and amplify those stories due to, as we mentioned, those structural gaps in the publishing industry that may not center those stories or for the variety of reasons of why they may not get access to mainstream media. This idea of, of the conscious kid, the work you're doing, this whole area centers around the sense of belonging and by any independent uh, yardstick, it is clear that one of the challenges that exists in our schools is far too many children enter school not having that sense of belonging, not having that sense of self-worth. Uh, it may stem from challenges at home, but we have seen that oftentimes uh, even challenges at home can be exacerbated mm. uh, or, or, frankly, made worse if you don't get the requisite uh, support in uh, recognizing your own value and worth. Mm -hmm. So talk about the importance of belonging, not just as it relates to the literature that you're mm. involved in disseminating, but as you said earlier, the impact it has on all children, irrespective mm. of race, color or class. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So when we talk about belonging, um, it's shown to be a need equivalent to food and water and air, right, as far as thriving. Um, and I think a big part about uh, belonging is just first kind of understanding how it can differ across communities. Um, I think that's one of the first kind of uh, limitations of belonging is this idea of that it's seen as this universal piece. Uh, there are aspects of belonging that cut across all communities, things like strong student-teacher relationships, right? Um, things like uh, high expectations paired with high-level support, right? Trusting school climates, academic enrichment, highly trained uh, teachers, right? All of these things support belonging for all communities. But then there are nuances for how it can differ across communities as well that folks may not realize, right? So when we talk about, uh, you know, particularly for, say, African-American students, when we think about school policies that may target uh, black hair, right? Um, or punish students for expressing cultural practices that aren't necessarily oppositional to other students or folks. 
Um, the Crown Act is a policy for folks who may not know that was created to um, try to push back in school policy that would basically punish black students for wearing their hair in say cornrows or say braids or say uh, dreadlocks. Um, and so really this idea of how can we start to make belonging, making sure that we're all folks are community are, are all folks are, are sorry are supported. Um, we got to do two main things. One of which is we need to look at what are the actual practices in place to support all students, and then what mechanisms do we have to even assess the belonging of our students? The problem is, is the mechanisms that we have, like I said, some are good. We know that there are some things that work for all students, but we're still, as you mentioned, folks are still leaving the education system feeling as if they weren't supported, um, not feeling valued, not feeling respected, and not feeling included. Um, so what are some of those differences? Well, there's culturally specific differences, but then we got to unpack that more as far as what do we mean by culture? Because when folks define culture, it's often seen as like race or ethnicity. Um, and we talk about terms and not having an understanding of what it means. Culture, yes, can mean race and ethnicity, but it can also mean like sports culture or gaming culture. Um, and the definition that we're using is a set of shared practices situated in some kind of social uh, historical context, right? So what are the shared practices in our classroom to make sure we're supporting all students, right? Um, that ties back to the discipline, right? What are our discipline policies or what are our grading policies? So for example, are we going to just punish students for getting a bad grade in the test, or are we going to give them the correction to the test, allow them to retake it to make sure that they actually learn the information? Um, what are our shared practices in recruiting students? What are our shared practices in making sure all communities feel supported within that school? What are our shared practices in making sure our teachers have training around that, right? What are our shared practices around funding? So really this idea of making sure this idea of school culture includes the culture of the communities that are in the classroom. Um, to where students don't feel like they have to choose between going to school or their home culture. Um, and I think an example of that I can think of is this idea of like linguistics, right? Um, it's like one example outside that actually does apply like ethnicity, right? Um, school is kind of very English dominant. If you speak are bilingual, there are some schools that are bilingual, but that can be a barrier, right? If you don't have a shared practice to address the linguistic differences across your students. So when we come to understanding belonging, yes, there is some things that definitely cut across that all students for sure need, right? That level of support, um, that level of trust, those strong connections, student-teacher relationships. But then we also want to make sure we're looking at the differences in our students as well and making sure we're attuning to those. Um, yeah. What is your sense in terms of how schools generally and school districts are responding to this challenge of ensuring that um, – all kids have this sense of belonging. Depends on the school. So some some schools are really for, and it can even depend on the people in the school. So there may be some individuals that are like, you know what, I maybe have personal experiences or that hold connections to these things and I see the importance of it. Or maybe I've read some literature and gotten educated and I see it. But the problem is, is these things now have like connection to this political base now where it's seen as maybe maybe their particular candidate or hasn't endorsed it, right? And so folks may be afraid to kind of align with that. So it just depends on what school you're in, what state you're in, um, the people in that space and their understanding and even pre-training. I'm, I'm I, I don't want to say epistemology, epistemological practice because that's not an accessible term, but the dispositions and training they've had around these issues, education they've had around these issues. Um, and 
It just depends. I, I mean, we the yeah. Research it, a lot of us, the as you said, the acculturation. I mean, you know what 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 their environment has been growing up. This has been very important. Uh, this conversation, and I have one more question. This is what I really want to know. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to teachers and parents uh, about how to ensure all students feel valued? and have this sense of belonging at their school? Yes, if I were to give, I'm thinking of, there's a few different like mechanisms that folks can use, but or things that people can do. Um, the first is to kind of think about your space and position in the school. If you're a parent, teacher, student, uh, school leader. Um, if you're a parent, say, and you wanna advocate for your students, or if you're say a teacher, as you, as you mentioned, I would say two things. Um, one, you have to make sure that creating belonging has to be intentional. It cannot be this uh, reactive model. It has to be proactive and it has to be thought out, fairly thought out. And on top of it being thought out, it has to be routinely checked and assessed to make sure folks are getting the outcomes and experiences that we're, we're aiming for. So one of which is like creating a shared plan. This is like some. This is like a, a, a low level thing that I feel like can be done in almost any institution um, with parent support is creating this idea of a shared plan. There's this idea of like IDPs or individual development plans where folks have a plan for what they want their student to be. But there isn't like a long-term plan for what that looks like, especially over like five, 10 years, right? Um, Let's say you're in high school and you have a high school and you want them to have a positive high school experience and you want them to go to college. Is there a plan that the parent, that the teacher, that the principal, that the school coach, that everyone is that's in this person's life has in supporting this person to reach those clear outcomes, right? What is the shared plan and what does that look like long-term? When everybody's on the same page, that's when you start to see organizational change, right? But you have to have a shared plan and what that looks like versus if you have maybe one person who's doing this thing and they're advocating, but then they got the school they got to go up against and maybe some things work out and maybe not, and then you're frustrated and you leave and you try to find a new space. Find a space and find individuals that you can be and make a proactive shared plan for how you want to navigate not only the school system, but what you want your goals to be. I want to go to college after four years. Okay, so what do you need to do that? You need to be in community service for four years. Like this should start in like eighth, honestly, in middle school, if you want to do something like this, going to college. Okay, well, what's your community service look like? What does your grades need to be like? Um, What courses do you specifically need to take, not just to graduate high school, but to be a competitive applicant, right? That's the thing is like, Mm -hmm. uh, you might need two years of foreign language to graduate, but that's not going to make you competitive at the four-year level if you want to, say, go to an Ivy League school, right? But once you get everybody on that shared plan, then you're actually able to make sure that students thrive. And then most importantly, having open lines of communication where you're on, where, where the person feels like they can genuinely communicate if they don't feel that belonging, and then making changes accordingly. But I would say having a proactive, well-thought-out shared plan amongst everybody in that student or child's life. Ramon Stevens, this has been a great interview. Thanks so much for joining us on What I Want to Know. Thank you, Kevin. The privilege is all mine. And uh, yeah, hope for the best of you. And thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education and write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know 
using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag WIWTK. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.